now I want to pretend to be a postmodernist. Is that okay? You guys are not going to throw me out? I'm going to pretend to be a postmodernist. And the reason why is that I really think we can learn from postmodernists and that maybe this crisis of postmodernism can help us reinvent the church. Now, I'm not going to throw out those central tenets of the faith that are so powerful and meaningful to me. I think that's a mistake of postmodernism. But I do think we have something to learn. And so I've entitled this presentation, Postmodern Radical, 10 Ways to Make a Difference in Your World. And these are not exclusive. They're just to get us thinking. 10 ways I want to throw out there to get us thinking. But before we begin, let's invite God's presence. Father, it's been so incredible to see you at work. And as we meet this afternoon, you know the challenges that people are going through. I, I just ask for their focus now as we rethink the church, as we rethink what it is you're calling us to do. And Lord, I pray that we will leave from here not just with theoretical knowledge, but with a de determination to make an impact on our world. For we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Had a young person come to me and they had a really interesting statement. They said, I don't feel like going to church. And uh, for a while, I, I thought of turning back to them and saying, oh, well, I don't either. <laughs> but I had something even more radical to say to them. I said, don't go to church. Like, wait, hold on a minute. You're a pastor. You're not allowed to tell me that. Don't go to church. That's like one, rule 101 in pastoral vocabulary. You don't tell people not to go to church. And they said, how can you tell me not to go to church? I said, no, I have something more radical to tell you. Don't go to church. Be the church. And what do you mean? See, the church in the New Testament was not a building. In fact, buildings only came in the 3rd and 4th centuries. Anyone know why? Because they were being persecuted. So you didn't want to build a building. Yeah, here we are. Come get us. Throw us to the lions. That didn't work very well. So they had church in homes. And so when they talked about church in the New Testament, they talked about people gathering together to worship God and to be on a mission for God. So I said, the problem is you're going to church to be a spectator. God never called us to be spectators. He called us to go to church so that we could be the church. So if you're just going to church to visit, yeah, that's boring. I agree with you. You know, it's like... Uh, the pastor who was up in front of the church one day and he said, uh, we're going to have a board meeting after the church with all the board members. Please come to the front. So one guy comes up and he says, you're not a board member. And the man says, pastor, if there's any member who's more bored than I am, I'd like to know about it. <laughs> well, if you go to church, yeah, you're going to find that that church is boring. But when you are the church, something changes. And, and I am going to suggest to you a reinvention of how we think about church. I want to give you 10 strategies for how you can make a difference in your church and make a difference in your world. And so I'm just going to throw them out there and see what you think. Number one, strategy number one, pray for rain. Pray for rain. Now, We've talked a lot about the Holy Spirit in the last years, ever since General Conference a year ago. We need the Holy Spirit. Let's have Holy Spirit revival. Seven, seven, you know, seven. We're going to pray for things, and, but, but it's not really happening. And one of the most powerful experiences I've had is when I've gone to prayer sessions where we do these like little popcorn prayers and we start praying for God to work in our lives and we start giving thanks to God and we, and we start... We start bringing our requests to God. And, we, and there's people, they call it united prayer. They'll sometimes pray the whole night. Have you heard of this? And, and it's so powerful when God's people gather for prayer. My wife and I have started praying every night. God, send us the Holy Spirit. Fill our lives with the Holy Spirit. That's in contrast to what is really going on. Uh, this is what David Watson says. If God were to take the Holy Spirit out of our midst today, about 95% of what we're doing in our churches would go on, and we wouldn't even know the difference. Woo. You know, I, and it's true. I, one, one of my fellow doctoral students, he, he had this awful th dissertation. I don't know why he did it. He wrote a dissertation on church boards. So he went to like, I forget what it was, like 50 church boards in a year. 
and he was writing a dissertation on it. And so then he came and gave a presentation. We were all fascinated. What did you find? Was it really boring? And so <laughs> he, he gets up and he says, you know, apart from a little devotional thought at the beginning and a prayer at the end, that's the only time the name of Jesus or God was ever used. We treated church just like it was a business. How many of you want something different than that? How many of you want to be in a church which is filled with the Holy Spirit? You know, the only way it's going to happen is when your life is filled with the Holy Spirit. Now, let me just get pumped up a little bit here. You're going you're gonna to stand, stand back because this is pas a passionate area for me. Wherever the need of the Holy Spirit is a matter little thought of, there is seen spiritual what? Drought. No rain, in other words. Spiritual darkness, spiritual declension, that's deterioration, and even death. Acts of the Apostles, page 50. Five powerful pages. You really need to read these five pages from Acts of the Apostles. Just incredible. And so it goes on to say, since this is the means by which we are to receive what? Power. Why do we not hunger and thirst for the gift of the Spirit? Why do we talk of it, pray for it, and preach concerning it? For the daily baptism of the Spirit, how often? Every day, every worker should offer his petition to God. So how many of you prayed for the Holy Spirit today? Amen. I mean, it's, it's, it's something that we have forgotten, we've neglected, so we try and manufacture it. It's kind of like uh, this evangelist, uh, revivalist, he used to go into a town. He followed his normal practice. He took, took a white dove, grabbed the boy from the town. He said, look, I'm putting this dove in this cage. You go sit up in the rafters. When I get to this powerful point in the sermon, I'm going to look up and say, Holy Ghost, come down. You open the cage, the dove flies out. Everyone's going to be saved. So the boy says, all right, sir, gets up into the rafters. He waits. The guy starts preaching, gets to the end of the sermon. He says, Holy Ghost, come down. Nothing happens. Winds himself up again. He says, I said, Holy Ghost, come down. Still nothing happens. This time he pointedly looks into the rafters. I mean, the heavens. And he says, Holy Ghost, come down. And a little curly head pokes its way through the rafters and says, I'm sorry, sir, but a yellow cat done ate your holy ghost. Do you want me to throw down the yellow cat? <laughs> <laughs> so you can't manufacture this. And sometimes I feel we try and replace the Holy Spirit with a program, some kind of mechanism where we'll make it feel like we have the Holy Spirit. Well, if we just get together and have a prayer at 7 o'clock, that'll mean we have the Holy Spirit. No, it's going to take heartfelt revival. Can you say amen? It's going to take us pouring out our hearts and saying, God, I need you in my life. I need you to take over who I am and to make me more like you. I mean, we've got to get real. How many of you want to be real? I mean, this is not a fake thing. This is a very real thing. Take a look at Second Chronicles 7 verse 14. If my people, which are called by my name, shall humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven and forgive their sin and will heal their land. Do you think it's time for rain? What would happen, just with this group right here, if each one of us took this seriously, that we were going to get down on our knees and pray for the Holy Spirit? Could you join me for a moment here while we do that? Let's, let's pray. Let's pray together. Just kneel with me. I know there's not a lot of space. And, and let's pray that God comes into our midst. Father God, you know that we are sinners. And Lord, I come to you. I, I know I've messed up. And, and I know, Lord, this has been a busy week. And even as I prayed for the Holy Spirit, I've sometimes just lived out my own life. And so I'm praying, Lord, that you come in right now. You know the needs right here. There are broken relationships. You know the needs right here. There's been pride and there's been resentment. And there's been trying to do things on our own. And, and some are struggling with temptation, Lord. And I just pray that you'll wipe that away. And where there's been a drought in our hearts, that your reign of your Holy Spirit will just fall on us. Oh, please, Lord, we're pleading for it. We ask for it. In Jesus' name, amen. You know, I was thinking about revival. And I came across this statement, and I, I just couldn't help thinking of what would happen if we prayed for rain. Take a look at this. There is nothing that Satan fears so much as that the people of God clear the way. Do what? 
clear the way by removing every hindrance so that the Lord can pour out His Spirit upon a languishing church, that's my church, and an impenitent congregation, that's us. If Satan had his way, however, there would never be another awakening, great or small, to the end of time. But we are not ignorant of his devices. It is possible to do what? Resist his power. Now notice the next statement. I mean, I just love this. When the way is prepared for the Spirit of God, the blessing will come. Satan can no more hinder a shower of blessing from descending upon God's people than he can close the windows of heaven that rain cannot come upon the earth. In other words, when you remove the obstacles, you remove the hindrances, then you better just tell people, you better get your umbrellas. The devil, you better get your umbrella because it's going to rain. Amen? Amen? Strategy number two leads from this. We need to pray for rain. And then we need chalk revival. You know what chalk revival is? You draw a circle with chalk. You step into that circle. And then you pray that revival begins in that circle. Revival is going to begin with who? With you, with me. You know, we're going to have revival because God starts revival right in that circle. And that's going to mean changing some things. Revival and reformation go hand in hand. And so... You need to let go of some things that are standing in the way. If you don't let go of the world, you will never have room for God. It's kind of like a a beaker full of dirty cloths. You've got to get all the dirty cloths out so that you can pour in the Holy Spirit. And uh, that means taking care of some things. And I'm just going to be honest. One of the problems that people have, postmodern people have, is that they are addicted to media. They spend more time with Facebook than with the God book. Uh, They spend more time listening to music than listening to God. Uh, We are addicted to media. And and some of that media is messing with our brains. Uh, You've heard of Gigo? Garbage in, garbage out. So we're putting garbage into our heads. That's what's going to come out of our lives. If we want reformation, we've got to, got to change things. Now, in the good old days of CDs, we used to have CD burning parties. Any of you ever attend one of these? You know, you bring all your bad CDs, you know, Guns N' Roses, whatever the stuff was, and you would, you would then burn it. And it was kind of freaky because there's something about burning that kind of plastic that it makes all these freaky uh, kind of images. And you can almost see the demons dancing as they've been released from the CDs. Anyway, I don't know, but that was our imagination. So now, I mean, it may be MP3 stuff. You better get ready deleting. Delete, delete, delete. You better have accountability for the stuff that's on your computer. If you want to have God work in your life, you have to be willing to get rid of stuff. How many of you agree with that? You know, revival is not going to happen when we're, when we're listening to all the stuff that the devil is throwing our way. I mean, how can revival come in? You know, Lord, let there be revival. But then we go right out and and just absorb ourselves in the junk of the world. Any of you ever try to read your Bible after watching a movie? It it doesn't work very well. You know, you you just watch, you know, da-da-da-da, and the guy's swinging across some chasm on a rope, and, and, you know, your heart's beating faster, or somebody's falling in love. Ah, And you're watching all of this stuff, and then you get to the end of it, and you try and open your Bible. Your mind's not ready for it. So we need to get rid of the stuff that makes revival not happen. And postmodern people look at us and go, something is going on in that person's life. They're living differently. So how about a media fast? You've heard of other kinds of fasting. What about fasting from media for three days? No Facebook for three days. <gasps> I'm going to die. You know, but what if you just, just get rid of Facebook for a week? Had some students do that, and they don't want to go back because they were addicted. Are you, are you with me? So we need to make some changes. All right, strategy number three has to do with Bible study. And this one, I mean, it sounds simple, but I really believe this is where postmodern people are at and maybe where you and I are at. We need to go deeper, not faster. Away with a yearly plan to read through the Bible. I can't absorb four chapters like that. So you know what I end up doing? Because I tried it on my iPad. I was reading, you know, I was trying to do a yearly plan on my iPad, 
And then it started to get to me because I started falling behind. Any of you ever tried this? And then it would like pop up. You know, you're only on day seven. Don't forget to keep reading. And I have four chapters and I'm going through these chapters. Am I getting anything out of it? No, I'm just, I'm just breezing through the chapters. And uh, then I read this statement. Woo! Comes from Steps to Christ, page 90. There is but little benefit derived from a hasty reading of the scriptures. Hello, everyone. <laughs> One may read the whole Bible through and yet fail to see its beauty or comprehend its deep and hidden meaning. In other words, youth read through the Bible, but the Bible didn't read through you. One passage studied until its significance is clear to the mind and its relation to the plan of salvation is evident is of more value than the perusal of many chapters with no definite purpose in view and no positive instruction gained. What we need to do is start going deeper. When we get the Bible out and we start going through the Bible, we take one passage and we start asking, how does that passage apply to my life? Elsewhere, it talks about seeing what thought God has in that passage for me and then relate it to the plan of salvation, relate it to the big picture. And suddenly when you're studying a passage, you see Joseph is not just about Joseph, but it's about how God deals with the problem of evil, right? When you start reading about Joseph, you start reading about Christ in the story of Joseph. You start seeing things come alive. And the reason why the Bible is boring is because we treat it like a novel. Let's get to the end so we can see what happens to the heroine. Well, you already know what happens. You know, maybe when you were like my nephew who had never read the Bible before, uh, you know, when he was 12 and we were reading the story of Moses, he was on the edge of his seat because he didn't know what was going to happen. Are they going to make it? Are they going to all drown in the sea? And then, phew, you know, they got through. Well, you've got past that stage. So you don't have that sense of excitement. Why is the Bible written in a way that it still has power for you? It's written in order to bring out deep themes and lessons that God is teaching about your relationship with Him. And if you read for those, you'll discover power in Bible study. That's why some of the most effective Bible study in our postmodern world is inductive Bible study. What's the difference between a deductive Bible study and an inductive Bible study? A deductive Bible study knows what the answer is before you begin the Bible study. How many of you have studied Sabbath school lessons like that? You already know what the answer is before you even begin. All you're doing is confirming it. But an inductive Bible study says, I don't know what the end is going to be. I'm going to let the Bible speak to me, and I don't know where it's going to take me. I'm going to let it speak to me for itself, and then you're learning new things. How many of you felt that you stopped learning anything once you got past early teens? Yeah, well, hopefully not. But I mean, it can happen. And so we need to go deeper not faster. Does that connect? And so there's different things you can do. Some people have talked about a soap method. And I, I like the analogy of soap because you kind of rub it into your skin and you make a nice foam and lather. And so we take a scripture and then we, we observe that scripture. We pay careful attention to it. And we see what's new here. What is different? What am I not expecting? Looking for the unexpected is a great way for the story to come alive. What is new that I'm learning here? Then how do I apply it to my life? And then end with a prayer and an action and write a prayer down. So I have my students go through, pick a scripture, observe it, see what is new. What, what am I learning here? How does it relate to the plan of salvation? How does it speak to Jesus Christ? And then making an application to their lives because that's where we often fail. We don't connect it with our lives. What am I going to do because I've learned this? And then a prayer. So for instance... I was reading through Jeremiah chapter 18. And in Jeremiah 18, I noticed Jeremiah is sent down to the potter's house. And while he's down there at the potter's house, you know, the potter's spinning on the wheel. And then it says something fascinating. Does anyone remember what it says? What's wrong with what's, wrong with what's happening on the wheel? Anyone remember? It mars in the potter's hands. It's got a defect. And so... I had never really thought about that until I began thinking. I'm like, this is dirt. How expensive is dirt? It's dirt cheap, right? <laughs> so, you know, what's he going to do with it? He's got lots of dirt. He just can pick it up and throw it away. What's, what's significant is what he decides to do. Notice what I do, God is saying. Notice what I do with this, with this clay here. He says, instead of throwing it away, as long as the clay is willing to mold, he keeps using it 
And I'd never thought about that before. He, he's supposed to throw it away, but he doesn't. And then he says, shall I not do with you a house of Israel as this potter does with this clay? I'm going to keep using it, keep shaping it to become everything that I want it to be. Isn't that powerful? And so I thought the application to my life, God, I've messed up. I've messed up and I'm supposed to be thrown away. But if I let myself be molded to your hands, you can still use me. In fact, maybe you'll take my mistake and turn it to your glory. And, so, and then you turn it into prayer. God, use me today. Let me be moldable so that you can do with me as you wish. Strategy four. Now this one sounds strange. Be a sheep. Uh, anybody ever worked with sheep here? You ever worked with sheep? Yeah. Sheep are stubborn and stupid. Yeah. So... <laughs> They are, they are dumb, yeah. I mean, a sheep is not very good. You, uh, we were talking about sheep the one day with some people in class, and, and the one guy said, yeah, if I took a little lamb from its mother and I lifted it above eye level, the mother would get lost, like, bah, bah, where is it? Where? It's like, it's right here, dummy. It's right here, you know. And, oh, bah. okay, okay, you know, and you can put the sheep down. So they are not very intelligent. Now, that's not actually the point of the parable, but it sounded fun. So... To be a sheep is that one thing about sheep is that they follow their master. Unlike a goat. A goat doesn't follow its master. And so when I was thinking about sheep, I was thinking of the parable of the sheep and the goats. Jesus says, how are you going to make a difference in the world? Let me tell you what I'm going to judge you on. And what does he say? Now, don't make this into something that it's not. I was in Africa once with with this, uh, this preacher who was preaching about the sheep and the goats. He says, you want to know what the difference is between the sheep and the goats? He says, the sheep keep their tail down over their private parts. The goats lift their tails up. Now, you ladies who wear miniskirts, are you a sheep or a goat? <laughs> now, the difference between a sheep and a goat has nothing to do with dress reform, although that's an important topic. Amen? But it's not the difference between a sheep and a goat. And this is something profound. I think it's something that connects with our postmodern world. What is it that sheep do? Do you remember? They give food to the hungry. In this parable, they take care of strangers. They give clothes to the naked. They visit the sick. They visit the prisoners. Well, this was really an indictment. I give a little quiz to my Christian spirituality class and they do various assessments of their relationship with God. And one of them is of their relationship to the world. And I decided to take it myself. You know, my students are taking it. I may as well take it. So I punch in the figures. And when it came to compassion for others, I got this really scary statistic back. In fact, I'm not even going to share it with you. So I looked at it and I, and I realized, am I out there giving food to the hungry, taking care of strangers, giving clothes to the naked? My wife is, but I've been too busy and this is where the strategy has hit home and my wife and I have made a commitment that we are going to be more sheep-like we're going to do more of what Jesus would do isn't that what Jesus did so when Jesus called them sheep he was saying look go and do what I did he, he's saying greater love has no man than this than that he lay down his life uh, he, Jesus goes on and he says look this is how people will know that you are my disciples if you Love one another. And if I can't love the kinds of people that Jesus loved, what kind of Christian am I? Um, I was reading a, a book by a guy who was talking about how reading the life of Jesus totally messed up his entire life. I was like, this is great. Why am I reading this book? But this is what he meant. I can no longer live a normal life. I have to live a life that radically gives myself to others. And so he went and decided to sleep downtown with the homeless. Did anyone do that the other night? We had that advertised. No, so you guys need to be more like sheep. <laughs> Notice I said you guys. I, I mean to say we. All right. Take a look at a key attitude, attitude of the sheep, and I'm going to call this hospitality. In fact, I wrote a dissertation on this. I was a stranger and you took me in. Wasn't that one of the things that Jesus says to the sheep? I was a stranger and you took me in. I want I want to show you how this would work if we followed this as postmodern Christians. 
I was a what? Stranger, and you took me in. That means we should show hospitality, giving of ourselves, particular concern for those who are not part of our regular groups of friends and family. How many of you are hospitable to strangers? How many of you invite other people to sit at your table? How many of you go downtown and visit with strangers? How many of you actually reach out to somebody who's a little weird? Are, are you willing to be like Jesus, or are you more willing to be like yourself? How radical would it be for our postmodern world if we actually lived like Jesus? Don't you just want Jesus to mess up your life? You see, you are planning to have a comfortable life with you know, a wife and, and one and a half kids and whatever the average is, and you know, you just wanted to have you just want to have a comfortable home and do well in your business and give money to the church. And instead, Jesus comes in and totally messes up your life by saying, go on a mission trip. I don't want to go on a mission trip. I want to be here comfortable. I just want to finish my degree in under six years. <laughs> and he says, go. And, and so he messes up your life. And then you go for one year and he messes it up again by calling you to do long-term mission work. I mean, can Jesus mess up your life? Praise the Lord. Yes, he can. So reach out to strangers. And it says, you took me in. Now, somebody just come up here, and let's just give an example. When I am, hospitality is like an embrace. So let me choose a male so we don't get embarrassed ourselves here. So I say, hey, how you doing? And I give him an embrace. Okay, that's what hospitality is like. Now, notice there comes a point where you need to let go. <laughs> okay, thank you. I am welcoming him into my space. I'm taking him in. I'm opening up of my resources, my time, my energy, my money. And so when I hear about sickness and sorrow and suffering in different parts of the world, when I hear about AIDS and I hear about kids dying in Somalia, and when I hear about the Asia project, projects, Asia Aid and ASAP and so on, I need to care about those things because those are my brothers and sisters. Amen. I mean, that's what Jesus is saying. I'm going to give them my time, space, and resources. I'm going to open myself up. Am I going to let them take over my life? Do I remain hugging a person? No, I'm not going to let you go. No. I invite them in, and then I move them on, you know. Um, but it's going to be costly while I invite them in. You know, that's the nature of hospitality. Now, notice it says, I was a stranger, and you took me in. Who was being taken in here in the stranger? Who was taken in? Jesus. So Jesus is saying, look, I was that stranger and you took me in. In other words, you're going to get a blessing from taking in a stranger. Doesn't the Bible say by showing hospitality to strangers, we have entertained angels unawares? Yeah. And, and Abraham, who was he entertaining when he took strangers in? Jesus. So I get a blessing from doing service to others. How many of you have found that? You're going to do that. So I require a Christian service project in my Christian spirituality class. Where's Daniel, he's Danny, he's left. So uh, he's one of those. He was in my class. He goes out and they do service for others. And you know what? They all come back and say, I got a blessing. I get more of a blessing from helping others than they get from me. They've statistically proved that. They took a whole bunch of older people. I'm not going to say they're old, but older people who were giving themselves in service. And then they wanted to see who got the bigger blessing, the people who are being served or the people who are giving the service. You know what the statistic was? The people who are giving the service got the biggest blessing. People who are being served, oh, no, that's nice. You know. People who are, who are giving the service, like, wow, this was incredible. So we entertain Jesus. So I encourage you, when you think about this strategy, be a home to the homeless. Uh, make a difference in people's lives. So we carry food uh, in our car and we give food. We don't give money. Why not? Because money is freedom without responsibility. So we give food. And uh, we carry some food in our car to give to the homeless, and we help them out. Uh, when I was in South Africa, I went down to a squatter camp, and I'd take young people with me. We'd do a soup kitchen, and we'd sing for the kids, and we would have a little gospel presentation, and we'd help people in the squatter camps. And they loved us coming, and we loved going. It was a two-way street. It was incredible. And so whatever the case may be, however you're feeding and caring for others, do it. Make a difference. Be a part of the generation that shows who Jesus is. Can you say amen? amen. And that brings us to number five. Uh, I'm going to skip over that one for the sake of time. Be a servant. Uh, show God's love in a practical way. 
You know, isn't that what being a servant is about? So you can go onto a neat little website called servantevangelism.com. And, and I just think being a servant is an attitude of life. What are the kinds of things that you can do to be a radical postmodern? Well, f for one, you can stop thinking about yourself all the time. Like my daughter, we're still working on this. She's eight years old, going on 18. And he's like, Daddy, life is so unfair. Why is it that nobody loves me? That's because no one wants to do it her way. Her brothers want to do their own thing. And so why don't, why don't my brothers love me? When I told Seth to marry me, he wouldn't. <laughs> and I'm like, well, this is good training. Uh, <laughs> but you have to think outside of yourself. The world doesn't revolve around you. So being a servant is an attitude. Just like Jesus, he served others. Anyone who wants to lead must first be a servant. So what are the things that you can do? Uh, some of the things you can do is that you can just be a servant in crazy ways. You know, creative evangelism. When you're, when you're driving in your car and you're at a toll booth, pay for the person behind you. Uh, Joe Reeves was at Walmart the other night buying some cereal and some soy milk for John Bradshaw, and he forgot his wallet. So he's standing there at the counter. Um, <laughs> you know, what do you do? And some lady behind him says, no, look, I'll pay for it. And he's like, no, so give me your name and address, and I'll, and, I'll, and I'll give you money back. She says, no, 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 let me just take care of it. Wouldn't it be nice to find out that that was a Seventh-day Adventist Christian? Yeah, just be a servant. Do things. Um, some churches have handed out water, you know, bottles of water, and they may put a little message on it from themselves. And they just said, hey, this is from us. We want to serve you in some way. Free car wash. Come get your car washed. We just want to serve you. Uh, and serving downtown, you know, in different ways. West Side for Jesus, Patton Towers. Do something to make a difference in the world. Strategy number six. Experience connection. And I, I, as I said earlier, we need to get connected with each other. They did a survey. Eight healthy characteristics of a growing church. And they did the survey in all different denominations. And they said, if you have these eight characteristics, like inspiring worship, empowering leadership, and other things, then you will be a growing church. And then they did it on a bunch of Adventist churches, and they looked for the weakest point. Guess what was the weakest point in Adventist churches? Small groups. Adventists are pathetic at small groups. Uh, we think a small group is sitting in a circle going, uh, so what do you think? Did anybody read the lesson this week? Uh, that's not a small group. There is a power when we get together to study the Word of God. Any of you read the, read the book of Acts lately? Acts chapter 2 from verse 42 through 47 describes a powerful church right at the beginning of the Christian era. What were some of the things in that church? Does anyone know from Acts 2 verse 42? House to house, they met in houses. They broke bread together. There was food. Food is always a good thing if you want to attract young people. They had all things in common. They shared with each other. Yes, what else? They took care of each other. In other words, if someone was needy, they would pay for it. So all of your roommates are going to pay for your studies at Southern. This would be cool, right? <laughs> but I mean, there was community. What else was there? There was prayer. And there was devotion to the apostolic doctrines. In other words, they were studying the Bible and they were figuring out what Jesus meant to them. What would it be like if we had more of these small groups? At Southern here, we have life groups. How many of you are a member of life groups here? Okay, of small groups. How many of you are a member of a small group? See, you're like typical Adventists. So <laughs> we, need to, we need to get more serious about being part of small groups because small groups are where we experience community. I was shocked when I went to go and listen to a seminar on sexual addiction. And this guy who was taking the seminar had dealt with about five or 600 men. And I said, all right, give me the number one reason for addiction. And I was shocked at what he said. Lack of community. Lack of community. I said, what do you mean? He says, well, this is what it is. He said, community... When most of the people struggling with sexual addiction, they're addicted to pornography and, and other things, they get into that because they don't have 
a core net group of friends that they can depend on and that will help them through their crisis of addiction. And so they use addiction as an escape to feel better. Whew. So the answer to sexual addiction, according to this guy, is to get people in small groups where they can be genuine with each other. Did Jesus have small groups? He did. And that's what he called the church to. He said, go and make disciples, bring them into groups. They met in home churches. They didn't have big church buildings till four centuries later. They had small groups because life is better in community. We learn something when we're real with each other. Instead of this fake thing, happy Sabbath, how are you? I'm fine, happy Sabbath. No, actually, I'm doing terribly, but I'm not going to tell anybody because I'm wearing my Sabbath mask. Happy Sabbath. So... Acts 2 community, as we mentioned, small groups, food, apostles teaching, Bible study, fellowship, caring for each other's needs. There was, and that equaled evangelism and discipleship. So let's get this going again. Let's get Bible study with food and small groups with good fellowship and where we take care of each other. How many of you are willing to try and do that sometime? All right. This week would be good. God Attachment, page 126, a fascinating book. It talks about how most of us struggle with the lack of attachment in childhood. We are wounded in relationships, and we are healed in them too. We won't make much progress on our own because we have a de detachment disorder. We want to remain isolated so we can read and study on our own, but we won't take many steps forward that way. Whew. You don't grow all on your own. Jesus said you grow together. That's why he developed the church. All right, strategy number... Uh, I missed one here. The need to belong. People are looking first for a community to belong to rather than a message to believe in. Now, I'm not saying we shouldn't have a message. I'm just saying belonging comes first for many people. They are looking for a safe place to work out their sense of identity and self. So what is the big issue of young people? Who am I? And we need a place where we can figure that out. You know what, I think I'm kind of like this, but then other times I'm thinking like this and someone else can correct you and say, no, actually, you're none of that. You know, I see you like this. Really? You think I'm that way? And then you dialogue and you find out more about yourself and you find out how the gospel applies to your life. One of the ways in which this is hitting me profoundly is my wife is doing, a, uh, she's just finished her master's in biblical counseling. And, sh and she was sharing material with me. And I said, you know, I've learned counseling the wrong way. I thought counseling was listening to people. Yeah, so what do you think? What I hear you saying is, have you, any of you tried that? And she says, no, 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 that's not counseling. Counseling, biblical counseling, is showing people how to apply the gospel to their lives. So what we should be doing in small groups is saying, how can we take the gospel and apply it to my life? Instead of just going, so what do you think? We say, okay, but how does the Bible relate to what's going on in your life? And, and when we started talking about all the issues going on in our lives, our sense of lack of worth and, and uh, our sense of being unloved, we saw how the Bible could really meet those needs. And, and people who walked away with the sense of God really does love me and he thinks I'm worthwhile were able to handle addictions. But they did it in a small group where they experienced it. Strategy number seven, be salts. Now, I know I'm running a program called Soul Winning and Leadership Training, and I might just say this is a wonderful program that Southern offers here, but I'm not going to advertise it now, even though I really think you should consider it. <laughs> but I am saying that what does salt do? It, it adds flavor. It adds seasoning. Is salt any good in the salt shaker? No. Salt needs to get out of the salt shaker and into the world. And that's what Jesus did. He mingled with people. He seasoned them. He ministered to them. And we shared last time Christ's method. We said Christ went to make friends. He won their confidence. And then he was able to share with them that they needed to follow him. He shared the word with them. So what we need to be is to be salt, to learn friendship making, the art of social interaction. How many of you feel awkward with strangers? Just be honest. Some of you feel awkward here, so you're not going to raise your hand. I had to learn how to socialize because I'm an introvert. You know, give me a book. Give me the Bible, holy message shining. So I, they, give me the Bible and a good book and I'm happy. Now my wife is totally the opposite. Give me people and I will love them forever. So I had to learn hanging around with her how to interact with people. But as you learn the skill, you can become better at it. How many of you have discovered that? 
You learn how to relate, how to socialize, how to connect. You learn how to, how to just be their friend. God will use that to make a difference in the world. We, we have more resources than ever before also for giving and sharing Bible studies. So being salt means we can go out and effectively share the word with others. We had this guy. We were busy doing some training. And uh, we said, we want you to do one thing this week, just one thing. Are you all going to do it? And there's this one older guy there, and he was kind of looking grumpy. So we said, one thing, we want you to promise that this week, you're just going to go to someone and say, I have a message from, I, I read something in the Bible, and it really impacted me. Do you mind if I share it with you? He said, do you all agree to this? Everyone raises their hands except this one guy. We look at him, looks back, <laughs> raises his hand. All right, good. So the guy that week, we come back the next week and we have some testimonies. All right, who went and did what we asked? And a few hands went up. And surprisingly, this guy's hand goes up. He says, you'll never believe what happened. He says, I was in this uh, truck on the way to work. I was traveling with my companion. We were in the front cab. And he says, he was, uh, he was on the side seat reading a newspaper and I was driving. And I put my Bible in the back. And I thought, well, I've got my text. I'm just going to share it with him. He waits till he opens the newspaper. And he says, this is a good time because he's not really going to want to listen. So he waits till the guy opens the newspaper. And then he says, um, Jack, I, I, um, I like, um, I like uh, found this verse in the Bible. And I wondered if you'd mind me sharing it with you. Jack folds up his newspaper, puts it down. And the guy is so shocked that he completely forgets his Bible verse. He like looks across at him, looks back out. He says, I, 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 uh, I don't remember exactly what it was. <laughs> the guy reaches back and says, oh, your Bible's here. Well, maybe I can find it for you. Which book was it in? I uh, don't remember. <laughs> so the guy flicks open the Bible, and there is some underlined. There's an underlined text, Isaiah 58. It's on the Sabbath. <laughs> and... Uh, he says, it looks like you've got like a chain reference here. Do you want me to just read the chain re reference? Um, I, I, I guess so. <laughs> so he reads that. He says, what does that mean? It's like, well, the Sabbath is, is about relationships. And um, he says it's supposed to be a joy and delight. And he's kind of fumbling. The guy says, wow, that's really interesting. I've never heard that before. He says, you know, I've, I've been struggling a little bit with religion myself because I forget what it was. His mom or his grandma had just died. And, and he was kind of struggling with that. He says, you have anything on death? Um, uh, I think so. <laughs> and so they he turns to the chain reference on death, and he starts reading through what's on death. And the guy at the end says, that's phenomenal. I've never heard anything like that. You know, that has given me such a sense of peace. Thank you so much for sharing that with me. The guy says, I'm blown away. I totally messed up on my Bible study, and God used it anyway. <laughs> and I'm like, well, maybe we should just go out and try. Just go out and, and, and share something. What's the worst that can happen? What's the best that can happen? You know, as we learned earlier, uh, we should use questions. And as we're being salt, uh, we should learn how to ask questions, how to engage people in dialogue. We did that last time. And so we need to get people to think about it. We also said, if we're going to be salt, we need to get people to experience our theology, to see it in our lives, and then to join in with us in some of the activities we do. Have some social events where you invite people who are not of your faith. This is the next strategy, and it's kind of a little unusual. I call it Think Orange. Have you heard of this? Think Orange is... There's a, it's a book on youth ministry that totally blew me away. It's the idea that youth ministry shouldn't be relegated to some little department in the church that only the youth people hang out at. Youth ministry should be something the entire church is involved in. How many of you have gone to AYS in a non-Caucasian culture where they like have the whole church involved? Isn't that phenomenal? You have the whole thing. Well, this idea of Think Orange... Is, is basically the idea of think outside of the box. Instead of thinking one color or another color, just, just think something totally different. And uh, it's the idea that the family plus the church equals change. When you can have the family and the church involved in raising a young person, that's when you're going to have change. So quite often families go, I don't know what to do with Johnny, so I'm giving him to you and uh, good luck. 
And you're like, oh, great. What are we going to do with Johnny? Johnny's a hellion. So the idea is instead of having a youth meeting at the church, you have a youth meeting in someone's home. Now, I went to one church where I only had four young people. Kind of a little scary. So I couldn't have a meeting at the church. I said, well, let's meet at your home and you invite your friends. Well, we grew from four people to nine young people in one year, which is pretty good. You know, and they came together and they were reaching their friends and their friends were saying, this is great. And we're meeting in families' homes and they were doing the youth ministry. The whole family was involved. And some of the friends came over because they said, you know, I just like hanging out with your mom. Guy says, what do you mean? But, <laughs> but he says, no, don't go to that way. I mean, I just, your, your, your family is just so nice. I just like hanging out here. And don't kids need a home? So, you know, get involved at church. Get everybody involved. As young people, let's get young people involved in the church and let's get families involved with young people. How many of you can say amen to that? You can read more in the book Think Orange. Now this one, man, this one's a little radical. Plant a church. Now when I think about planting a church, I think about a lot of hard work. But then I read about the Apostle Paul. You know the Apostle Paul planted nine churches in three years. Nine churches in three years. And they were all in different locations. It's not like they were all in the same city. Plant one church here. Guy's doing well. Great. I'll send you a letter. Bye. And then he's on to the next one. And then he, he, he plants another church and raises it up and puts some leaders aside and tells them he'll send them a letter or meet him in Rome or something. And he just keeps on going and he plants nine churches in three years. I mean, isn't that phenomenal? And I, I'm thinking, and, and Paul started out as a young person. And, and I look at the early Adventist pioneers. I, this blew me away. James White was writing to young ministers. And he said this. He said, if you can't plant a church, maybe God hasn't called you to ministry. If you can't raise up a church, maybe you should understand that God hasn't called you to ministry. Well, there goes 75% of the pastoral force. Why can't young people plant churches? I mean, why, why not go and do something in a community? So you say, well, that, that can happen. Yeah, it's fraught with difficulties, but it can happen. I've seen young people do it. Even downtown at Patton Towers, we planted a church. North River, we planted a church. I've been involved with a church plant at Eastridge. We planted a church. You can plant churches. You can make a difference. Maybe the church you plant is a small group in the dormitory. You can make a difference. Strategy number 10, be a missionary. Because I am inspired by what the Mormon church does by sending all of their young people to be missionaries. And instead, you know, we go, woo, Southern Adventist University, we may be able to get to send 10%. You know, what, what kind of strategy is that? Let's send 100%. You know, how many of you, when you sing to Jesus the song, All to Jesus I Surrender, would sing, One-tenth to Jesus I surrender, One-tenth to Him I freely give, I surrender one-tenth. No, let's get everybody doing mission work. Is this too radical? Why, why don't you start? If, how many of you are willing to go out and do mission work? Now, I know not all of you can be foreign missionaries. Take a look at this. There's a need of both what? Home and foreign missionaries. There is work right at hand that is strangely neglected by many. Every person who has felt the converting power of God becomes, in a sense, a missionary. You can be a missionary right where you are, but do something. Don't just say, well, I can't really share anything and I can't do anything. Oh, God, stop giving me that nonsense. Just get out there and do something because God is calling you. Are you working for God or are you working for mammon? Because Jesus says you can't serve both. I'm inspired by missionaries that I read about and William Carey really struck me and this is where I'm going to end. He was just a young shoe cobbler in, in England, didn't have an education. And no one was m a missionary at that point. There were no missionaries. People didn't send missionaries. The pagan people were going to die anyway. And he, he couldn't stand that. And so he wrote these words and he preached a fiery message to the very first little society that was founded. They wanted to be a missionary society, the Baptist Missionary Society. And he, and he said this, expect what? Great things from God attempt great things for God. So there they say, you know, you preach such a great sermon. We want to send you as a missionary. That's the danger of preaching great sermons. So they put some money together and they sent him out as a missionary to, anyone remember? 
India. Gets to India, it's all a mess. He doesn't win a convert for like years, like seven years. Doesn't win one convert. Would that have been discouraging? Absolutely, but he's determined. He keeps working at it. He quickly figured out that he wasn't very good at preaching to the Indians. That wasn't his strength. He was good at writing. So he began to translate things into their language. And then other missionaries started to be inspired by him. And pretty soon, everybody was sending missionaries. Missionaries went to Africa. and Missionaries went to, to India and China. And some of them would never come back. They just knew, when I go, that's it. You'll never see me again. Because of what he did, a missionary movement was launched that took the gospel to the world. What would happen if this group here decided to be radical missionaries like William Carey? What would happen if, because of your life, other people were inspired to make a difference? How would things change if God stepped into your life and said, I'm sending you and I'm going to do miracles through you? Let's pray. Father God, we're just human beings with selfish agendas. And yet you've called us to be missionaries for you. You've called us to take a radical stand, not to be content with the things of this world, but to put ourselves in your hands and say, Lord, here am I. Send me. There are missionaries here today who will open up unentered territories. There are missionaries here today who will be able to make a difference right in their home field, maybe right on this campus. Wherever it is, Lord, inspire us to be the kind of radical postmoderns that you've called us to be. For we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's Word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.